Well, you know, we all want to cheat death, don't we? Who, hands up here if you want to cheat death. No one. Come on, who wants to cheat death here? My goodness. We all want to cheat death, you know. But actually, there's only one person who's ever done that. But because of what he has done, then we get to live too. And of course, I'm speaking about Jesus. And really, you know, from today, whatever you know about the Christian faith, whatever you've learned about it, actually, it all starts from Easter. Now it begins. From this day forth, the church begins to... You know, its birth, it begins to take shape, it begins to engage in its mission. And, and, and this day, this day is as much a celebration of, of Jesus' gift of, of life to us as, as, as a, a day of celebration of his conquering death. Now it begins. If you've followed the, the last few days and been at the vineyard, you will know that you've You've been at the Passion film, we showed it on Friday, and many of you will have seen that already, Mel Gibson's Passion. It's a harrowing two and a half hours of, of an account of Jesus' death on the cross. Last Sunday, if you were here, you were celebrating what the church calls Palm Sunday, that day of triumph when Jesus comes into the city and And for a few brief moments, it seems as if the scales fall off people's eyes. They get it. They understand who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord, the Savior, the King to come. But then it all goes pear-shaped, or so it would seem. It suddenly seems to go horribly wrong. And some would like to sort of brush over the cross But actually, the cross was the very reason why Jesus came. And we'll talk more about what Jesus did on the cross in just a moment. But I said last week that if the cross had been removed from Jesus that week, if somehow or other Jesus could have been deterred or or if history should have taken a different course and Jesus would not need to go to the cross well then, Jesus would have been disappointed. Jesus would have been frustrated. There would have been an awesome sense of anticlimax in heaven. Because on the cross, Jesus did battle. On the cross, Jesus did battle not only with his, himself and his, his own pain and fear and, and struggle, but Jesus did battle with death and with darkness. I'm going to read you, actually, from the message, a version I don't use too often, but but one I do like. I'm going to read you Isaiah 53, the whole of it. It'll come up on the screen, but, but I want to just help us to get into the zone, as it were. And it's through understanding what Jesus has done that we better appreciate what he's done in rising from the dead. And Isaiah 53 is an ancient prophecy written hundreds of years before Christ. And Isaiah 53 tells the story of how the coming Messiah, because of course this is pre-Jesus' birth, is going to have to bear the sins of many. Go to the cross if you like. So let's read this together and it will set us up for what is still to come. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who could have thought God's saving power would look like this? 
God's servant grew up before him, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare. Beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it was, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he gave himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it. Life. Life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll, God, will reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of all black sheep. Amen. A wonderful passage. I enjoyed reading it in the contemporary version that is the message. Same scriptures, same Hebrew, but articulated in a more contemporary manner. It brings it into the 21st century, the fact that Jesus was intentional in his going to the cross. And that verse, so well known by many, that reference to sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on, on him the sins of us all. The Lord has laid on him our sins. Now as a result of that, a number of things have taken place. Because Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, our elder brother, if you like, in this matter, 
When the school bully comes into the playground and begins to knock seven bells out of you and your elder brother steps in to intervene. So Jesus has stepped in and intervened in the matter of our sins. He has taken the beating that was meant for us. He has taken that upon himself willingly and intentionally. And as a result of that, in the courtroom of the king, where there was, by the way, a good case against us, something else takes place. I was watching that movie, The Passion of the Christ, on Friday, and one of the criminals on the cross said something to Jesus from the cross, which really made me sort of sit up for a moment. What he said was this, was the effect that. He said, he said, God is justified in condemning us, Jesus. We're common criminals. But you, you are innocent. God is justified. Justified. That is a legal term. That criminal on the cross realized that he had got his just deserts. It was a just punishment. And actually the case against us, you and I, I include myself in this, the case against us is such that God would be justified in condemning us. But because Jesus has taken our place, now God is justified in setting us free. How many times have you and I, watching the evening news, seen some sort of statement read from the top of the courtroom steps outside the court? Another case, a carriage of misjustice, or someone's name has been cleared, and they stand there with their family and their friends, weeping with gratitude and relief. Maybe their solicitor reads a statement But it all says the same thing. My name's been cleared. It's been a harrowing three years. We've been to hell and back. But my name's been cleared. Now because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I, we stand in the courtroom of the King. And we can turn. And we can say, my name's been cleared. My name's been cleared. Wonderful. This was all going on on the cross. Not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we justified, but there is more. Just as a family might, you know, just as, as an, one who is accused is released from the dock and, and set free and greets his family outside the, the gate of the, the jail or whatever it is, and they fall on his shoulder and they weep and they hug and they kiss and their joy knows no bounds. So for us who have been set free, for whom our name has been cleared, we find ourselves not just in a cold, drafty place saying, what next? But we find ourselves not in the court of the king, but in the home of the king. We find ourselves with with God, our Father, standing to greet us, to gather up to Himself, welcoming us home, not just as an old friend, more than that, welcoming us home as sons and daughters and heirs of Christ. The Bible, in, in the book of Romans, spends great 
effort and energy talking about how God has adopted us, you and I, if we're in Christ, if our faith is in Christ, if we have, if we have clung to Him and asked for His cleansing, then we find ourselves in, included in the family of God, welcomed as sons and daughters, heirs of Christ. All this is possible. All this is possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We have a little catchphrase here, but it's a powerful one. I had a, a, a pastor from another church come up to just chat with me about things in his home situation during the week. And during the course of that uh, conversation, Ian Harvey, who until recently was our hospitality manager, said, we have a little mantra here. It's welcome home. Many of you, I've said to you personally, welcome home. Every church extends a welcome, I hope. But we, we would even go one step further. We want to say to you, welcome home. You know, we live in a culture that is disconnected. We live in a society that is just disjointed. Uh, a society that has been divorced from its roots. Where is home? Who knows what home means? Maybe for you the idea, the concept, the experience of home was a very painful one. That's all too common these days. Maybe it was a place of fear. Maybe it was a place of torment. Maybe it was a place that was not full of comfort and succor. Sadly, that is many people's experience today. But there is something extraordinary about that little expression, welcome home. Time and again when I've said to people, welcome home, something has welled up within us because deep in our genetic code, it would seem, deep in our very innermost being, there is a longing for home. Whatever that means. So Father gets to his feet and bends and welcomes us home as sons and daughters. There's something very powerful about that whole imagery. Okay, so all of that, all of that and more are the benefits of the cross. What Jesus did for us. And one might say, well, that's it, end of story. So what, why do we need Easter? Well, actually, Easter, Easter is an extraordinary event because there is more. If God himself welcomes us, something very extraordinary happens with Easter. And I'm going to show you another film clip now. It's from Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. It must be 20 years old. I came across it, looked at it during the week, and I thought, let's watch that. Let's watch it. But there is some extraordinary power in, in all of that. And uh, it, it does communicate. But I love what Ian Harvey, Hardy, said. And now it begins. Because otherwise, it could have just been another story. But the fact that Jesus is alive, and that's what Christians celebrate, is extraordinary. Think about it for just a moment. Those 12 disciples, and maybe a few hangers-on, were totally traumatized by the events of Good Friday. But something happened to turn them around. 
something extraordinary with all their different personalities and character traits. Thomas with his doubts, James and John always arguing, poor uh, Pete. Peter with his his big mouth that was getting him to trouble. You know, these different characters, some extrovert, some introvert, were suddenly galvanized into a position whereby most of them, if not all of them, were willing to die for the message. They They were martyred. As I think I said last year, Peter, legend has it, tradition has it, was crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the manner of his Lord. What happened, what took place to turn these scaredy cats, these betrayers, these doubters, these deniers, into a a force, an army, that here, 2,000 years later, We are still talking about Jesus. Something extraordinary happened. And that extraordinary event, we believe, is the resurrection. Let me just say a couple of things about that. Those of you who who were here in September, we had a guest speaker, Derek Morphew. If you go on to the um, iTunes podcast thing, where we, we have, I think, six months of talks uplisted... There is in September, I can't remember the date, but it just doesn't actually say Derek Morphew, it says guest speaker. You might like to listen to that talk again because guest, the guest speaker that day, Derek Morphew, reminded us, he's a theologian from South Africa, that actually when we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about resuscitation. You know, that might take place in, in an A and E ward today, countless times across this nation, where somebody by rights should be dead, but suddenly, kapang, they're alive again. Dear old Jack Sparrow breaking out of his coffin, he escaped with his life by pretending to be dead, but Jack Sparrow one day is going to die. Resuscitation only sets you up for the next occasion when you're going to die. This is different though. This is the resurrection. Isn't it extraordinary that no one that I'm aware of has ever laid claim to having the tomb of Jesus, the bones of Jesus? Bear in mind that Christianity has a third of the world now are so-called adherence to the Christian faith. Wouldn't you have thought that someone somewhere, some enterprising Christian, would have set up a, a, a tomb and said, this is the place where Jesus, after a long and happy retirement, following his Easter Sunday, is buried. Get your brochures, your tea hats, your, 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 your t-shirts and polo hats here. Hasn't happened. You know, you can go and visit Lenin's tomb. Highgate Cemetery, isn't it? Many great leaders, you you know, we we have their writings, we we know of what they did, and, and we can go and pay homage to their hometown and all those kind of things. But there is a tomb, a set of bones somewhere. But isn't it extraordinary that we do not have that with Jesus? That is the case because Jesus is alive. If ever anybody sidles up to you and says, 
Guess what I found just south of Hatfield? Don't believe them. They're having you on. You see, it's not resuscitation only to die again. It's resurrection. And what does the resurrection really say? Well, I I was saying just a moment or two ago how our name has been cleared. The resurrection clears Jesus' name. Let me explain that. In the scripture we, we understand that you know, the wages of sin is death. Romans 8 talks about there is a consequence of sin. The wages, if you like, of sin. And that is death. When we sin, one day, inevitably, we will die. Now it was one thing for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die for our sins, substituting himself for us. But at the end of the day, our God is a just God. That's why your sin and mine had to be dealt with justly. But what about Jesus? You see, there's no sin in him. So an innocent man died. God vindicated his own son, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. Death, which is the wages of sin, could not hold him. It could not hold him because he was not a sinner. He rose again from the dead. Father God raised him. Vindicating him, clearing his name. It's a wonderful thing. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Death has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. I love that image, you know. We used to have this old Labrador, and if you've ever had Labradors, they will eat anything. And every now and then, once in a blue moon, there'd be this disgusting yakking sound from behind the sofa, usually. And you think, oh my goodness, what's he got now? And he'd be chewing usually a pair of shoes of mine or something like that, which is another story. But, but all of a sudden, he would, like, he would swallow, and then he'd look at you and wag his tail with that daft look on his face. And you think, oh, his name was Caesar. Oh, Caesar. Outside, dog, outside. There was a bit of yakking. Not too savory, I have to say. But then there was a gulp and a swallow, and it was gone. Death has been swallowed up by Christ in victory. Swallowed it up. Talk about defusing that death thing, that dark thing, that thing that you and I do dread. The older you get, the more you think about it. Take it from me. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And God the Father, because he is just, has raised Jesus from the dead. He has vindicated Jesus. But that is not all. Romans 8.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because do you know what? If our name has been cleared... If our sin has been forgiven, Psalm 103 says, God puts it as far away as from east is from west. If our sin is no more because of Christ's substitution, suddenly, wait a minute, we're sinless because of Christ. And as a result of that, guess what? God gives us his free gift of eternal life too. That's why Christians hope for heaven. 
That's why we set our eyes on the life to come. Because we believe that just as Jesus was raised from the dead and, I might add, is coming again, so we shall be raised from the dead on that great day where God puts all wrongs to right and wipes every tear from every eye. You see, this Easter story, daffodils, Easter bunnies and eggs and all the rest of it, I love it all. And we're doing that as a family this afternoon with my granddaughter and all the rest of it. We're going to have great fun, just as I hope you will. But at the heart of this is a life-changing message, more than a philosophy, more than a bit of great teaching. This changes everything. It changes the way you and I do life. It changes the way we approach life. It changes the way we see life. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see ourselves in God's eyes. All of these things. And as you let it soak in and sink in, as you begin to engage with God for yourself in, in prayer, in meditation, in reflection... In a quiet moment, stuck in a traffic jam, for heaven's sake. As you allow that to begin to take place, something begins to be transformed in you. We're in the transformation business. Something begins to change in us. And all because our name has been cleared. So... In faith, in in Jesus, three things. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe you've come here today not very conscious of being much of a sinner. In fact, you're a nice person. You do your best and pay your taxes and love your kids and are kind to your wife and don't kick the dog when it yaks behind the sofa. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you've dragged yourself in here feeling wretched feeling in the need of a fresh start, in the need of a, for, for God's forgiveness. Well, you're in the right place. Maybe that whole concept of having all charges dropped against you, being justified, being justified is a compelling one. Maybe you live life with a guilt-shame thing going on. Maybe you live life with a little script, a little voice in your head telling you again and again and again where you messed up big time and are living the consequences. Maybe that whole business of being a son and heir, a legal term, ladies as well as men, being welcomed home seems to resonates, seems to connect in a way that you're not sure why it does, but it does. All of this is possible. Because God has cleared your name. God has cleared your name. You know, there's a lot to this Easter thing, isn't there? And I just thought it was about Easter bunnies and eggs. There's a lot to this Easter thing. We're going to do something. We're going to finish our time with, a, as, as we always do, with a, another bit of sung worship so the worship team can join me. But, but I'm going to do something now because I want a visual aid for this. 
I want us just to, if, can we just drop the house lights just for a moment? Just for as, as low as we can, just for a moment. And I, and I want you to imagine yourself this April the 4th, 2010. This Easter day, grey, not particularly promising day. But on this day, today, in the 21st century, I want you just to imagine yourself being in the tomb. The images that we've had up are from within the tomb, walking out into light. And after we dismiss, you will turn round and you'll go out through that door or out through the doors up there. Just turn round and look at that door. Even on a dull day like that, just, everybody just turn round, look over your shoulder, stand up if you need to. Look at that door there. You're going out into light and life. You're going, leaving darkness. You're leaving death. You're going out into light and life. And we've printed a little card for you that the stewards will give you as you leave, which simply says this, your name has been cleared. Take it, tuck it in your Bible, put it beside your bedside lamp, look at it from time to time when doubts and fears and self-accusation and, and regret and shame threaten to overwhelm you again. Your name has been cleared at huge cost, but nonetheless... Your name has been cleared. Let's all stand. Just going to pray. Father, I want to say thank you to you. All over the world, Lord God, there are celebrations of various kinds in high cathedrals and tin huts. And we have a team in Tanzania meeting in a Maasai village this morning celebrating Easter, the risen Christ in different tongues, in different languages, throughout time. Christians have found this to be an extraordinary, life-changing message. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life, all because Jesus died and has risen. We pray this Sunday that you'll do something in us, each one of us, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, that you will work in us that realization that Jesus is alive, that death has been swallowed up in victory, and our name has been cleared. And everyone said, Amen.